Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Kieran, I normally start by asking how you are, indeed where you are, but cards on the table, Kieran. I'm just going to come clean and tell you and everybody else that I'm not in a good mood, Kieran. And that may reflect itself during the course of the pod. We're recording this. It's now uh, ten past seven on Sunday evening. It's broad daylight. There are two birds blatantly doing spring-like things in the garden, (laughs) building some sort of nest. And not only is a cat not doing anything about it, I suspect she's actively helping them. I swear to God, I saw her a couple of minutes ago lifting some of the heavier twigs so these birds could get on with doing bird stuff while it's still daylight at night time. You know my views on spring and summer, Kieran. Not only that, but just as we're about to start the pod, I went to the fridge because the rules are quite simple. Daytime pod, cup of tea. Evening pod, I don't care if it is daylight, but look, glass of wine. I uh, went to the fridge, no bottle of wine because I'd forgotten. I, no. was so, I was so grumpy last night about the clocks going forward that I, I went into the second bottle of wine, clearly finished it, it helped by Ed. I have to, and then I, I just, well, I'll just let Kieran know I'll be five minutes late. And then he went, No, you can't, you can't. That'd be very rude. You have to start. I said, Will you keep him talking then? It's only five minutes down. She said, No. So I've got a cup of tea here, and I've got two hobnobs, which might take the edge off it, but this might be one of the shortest pods we've ever done, to be perfectly honest. I've, I've put a phone call into Ash, who runs the off-licence, who knows to have the door open ready, but we'll crack it. I'll tell you who is in a good mood, Kieran. Uh, you probably are, because you always are. Uh, Peterborough United will be in a good mood, Kieran, because it's one of the joys of football finance. Every now and again, uh, a, a, little, a little treat happens, and Ivan Tony came on at Wembley just a few minutes ago, and Peterborough ended up quite a lot of money uh, to the good, which is what I love about football finance. Something that, that happened five years ago is helping a club <laughs> in League One now. It's brilliant, isn't it? Absolutely. Yep, yep. And uh, uh, good luck to I think he's a fantastic player. He's an absolute, <laughs> absolute joy to watch, except except he's a nasty habit of scoring against Brighton. He's a, he, he's a great player, but the only unfortunate thing is, that, yeah, this is a very obscure reference, in the same way that John Jackson was unfortunate enough to be the best goalkeeper in England, except for Peter Shilton uh, and Ray Clements. Uh, this won't be the season that people remember Ivan Tony's goal-scoring feats. It's, it's Harry Kane and, and Harland. It's always going to be the, the case. He's a he's a brilliant man. He's only, I think he's only 26 or 27 as well, so he's, he's still got time to score a lot of goals. Um, how are you, Kieran? Let's keep this as brief as possible. You all right? Good. Yeah, great. Good. Let's move yeah. on. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, it's questions day, Kieran, but we do – we've got – Three big, big stories, um, all of which we've been talking about to a greater or lesser degree recently. Um, the first two at different ends of the Premier League table, and let's start at the wrong end. <laughs> yes. Um, Everton. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's a bit strange, isn't it? It's a bit, it's a bit strange that the Premier League goes 10 years, you know, without, without the bat phone ringing, without any press releases, uh, without any big tweets from EFL comms, um, <laughs> and then just either side of the white paper, uh, yeah. two 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 companies, sorry, two clubs end up before the beak. So um, we we have spoken about Everton's uh, finances before. Uh, towards the end of last season, when there was a battle royale uh, at the bottom of of the Premier League, as as it looks like there could be this year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Leeds and Burnley sort of indicated that they were unhappy, uh, given that Everton had lost £372 million in three years uh, in relation to a breach, a potential breach of financial fair play. And then it seemed to go away. Um, and also, when you, when you read the Everton accounts, uh, Ever- Everton claimed, uh, oh, yeah, uh, COVID, COVID cost us £170 million. And, and in fact, there could be another £50 million coming up. And, we're, and I'm going... Are you sure? Because Everton don't have very much in terms of gate receipts. Um, uh, they only get about fourteen or fifteen million pounds a year. So how, how do you get to one hundred and seventeen? And they say, "Oh, well, we have, yeah, we've got extra costs of COVID." I thought, well, bloody hell, what are you what are you testing them with?" <laughs> yeah, it, it, I, 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 I pop down to boots, huh? and I know I'll, I'll grump if it's sort of you know six or seven quid for ten for ten COVID tests. I go, "Well, where is it?" And they say, "Oh, yeah, yeah, impacted upon the transfer market meant that we we're unable to." 
to sign players. And I'm thinking, and I know this isn't a football show. I thought, well, I thought you'd specialise in signing a load of shite for the last five years <laughs> more than anything else. But, and you're, but you're blaming this on COVID. Um, and they go, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so every, everybody sort of went, well, okay. And then it just seemed to go to bed mm. um, until uh, on on Friday, uh, I was uh, I, I was minding my own business. I, I was returning home <laughs> from Liverpool to, to Brighton uh, on the train, and then something came through. And, of course, the phone goes berserk. Um, and, I, and I'd just like to apologise to everybody on the 1643 from Liverpool Lime Street to <laughs> Houston who, who go, why is, why is he, who's he talking to now? What's he, what's he original about? Why does he keep saying the same thing, 12 things, <laughs> 12 times to 12, 12 different people? It's the quiet, I could tell. It's, it's the quiet coach, mate. Come on. <laughs> yes. It's, it's the, I wish it was quiet coach. And then did so you, like apologise. Did you do that thing which I occasionally do, which is shameful, where I'll be on the phone and I'll say, oh, hello, Gary Lineker, just to make sure everybody on the train <laughs> knows that I'm talking to somebody. <laughs> oh, talk sport. Hello, how are you? Max Rushton, you say? Okay. I, I actually spoke to Max Rushton about this yesterday on TalkSport. Did you? Spookily enough. He's, yes, like, he's great. I love Matt. He's a good lad. Of yes. Me. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so the Premier League have said that uh, they are going to uh, ask Everton to effectively appear before a commission. Yeah. Uh, Everton have been extremely tetchy about this, by the way. They've yeah. said, we've not actually been charged with anything. This We've just been referred to a commission. Um, the commission, I believe, will consist of three people. One will be from a legal background, one from financial background, and another one. And this will be chosen by, by a KC, uh, by somebody senior. Um, so Everton said, well, we've not actually been charged for anything, but, but uh, look, you know, you're up before the beak. Um, they they have had a, a very strong rebuttal, uh, yes. saying, we, we, we are disappointed. We're surprised and disappointed. We've, um, But uh, what... Could the commission be talking about? Well, I think there are three potential areas. First of all, um, football clubs, even if they don't publish their accounts to Companies House, they have to submit them to the Premier League by the 1st of March. Mm. So it could be that that is the case. Yeah. Um, they've, they've not got round to submitting to the Premier League and their Premier League saying, right, we're going to take a hard line on this. Um, and we are going to uh, therefore have have you before the the people that make these decisions. Um, it could be that um, Everton have submitted their figures, and there are queries about some of the numbers, um, or the numbers having having added them up. It does it does appear that uh, Everton are in breach of the, the limit. And the limit is, is that a football club can only lose £15 million over a three-year period, but the owner can add a further 90 to top that up to 105. Yeah. Now, we, we have said before, in terms of financial fair play, there are specific exemptions. So if you spend money on infrastructure, and Everton have, they spent a lot of money on infrastructure. So, so that that's excluded. The academy, the community scheme, and I've said time and time again, Ever Everton and the community, absolutely fantastic. Yep. Yep. You know, and uh, the women's team, that that's also allowed. Um, so there, there are some specific allowances, but uh, having seen the accounts published by other clubs, uh, nobody's come near £170 million. Uh, and, but we said this 12 months ago and, and, and nothing was done. So therefore, yeah. I think the, the conclusion people reached in the absence of anything else happening um, was that the, the Premier League must have been happy with this. Um, these figures do cover up to the season 2021-22. Everton have not published their accounts at Companies House or on the club website. Um, they, they, they have until the 31st of March to submit them to Companies House. So I think they, they will be uh, subject to a lot of scrutiny um, from uh, from Everton fans, from uh, journalists. Uh, I've got to be honest, Everton have probably not helped themselves in terms of their relationships with the media uh, for reasons I'd, I'd rather not go on to on the show, but uh, some of the things that have been said have, yeah. uh, have, have rubbed people up the wrong way. Um, so you know, I think you, you've got to be careful how you, how you treat people um, in the media because they, they will come back to bite you. Um, so, so that's where we are. And in terms of the sanctions, there is no set 
list of sanctions because the Premier League's never really had to deal with this before. Could be. Finger wagging, you sent them in on the second of March, it should have been the first of March. But if so, you know, why why did the press why did the Premier League issue a press release to yep. this effect? Yeah, otherwise that seems just a bit daft. Um it could be a wage cap, it could be a squad limit uh imposed. The the the, the thing which is being discussed is points deduction, clearly yeah. with other clubs being impacted. Um my concern here is it is the 20-somethingth of March, the 26th of March. Um, how long is it going to take to, A, form a commission, B, for both sides to present evidence, three, three yeah, then for the commission to consider the evidence, to make a ruling? Um, we're getting closer and closer to the end of the season, <clears throat> and I think the credibility of football declines the closer you get to the end of the season if 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 the you know if if four days before the end of the season an announcement is made then you'll have managers saying well hold on you know we've been trying to get wins where we should have been trying to get draws because Everton if Everton do get a point yeah. deduction so I, I think it will be I, my gut feeling is it will be unlikely to impact upon this season because I just don't think the the mechanisms can work that fast um, I'm, I'm, I, my criticism here is levelled at the Premier League rules. In my view, the account should be in by the 1st of January because there's no reason why you can't do them by the 1st of January, by the way. Yeah, the f- football season yeah, ended last summer and that would have given the Premier League, if, if there were question queries about the numbers, it would have given them that little bit more of a leeway to to review the data, to, to, to have the commission and then you could have a decision by the 1st of March. But So, so that's where we are. Um, I, I, you know, my gut feeling, it won't impact upon this season because I think it's too late. There are very restricted grounds for appeal, but if, even if they're very restricted, you can understand why people might uh, want that because that, that creates confusion over the summer and therefore it would have to be a suspended points deduction and so on and gives you time to get your act together. Uh, as, as you say, Kieran, Everton have um, strongly rebutted these accusations it's virtually the only time you see the word robust used mm. these days is by football clubs defending themselves it, it strikes me Kieran, i've been having a lot of discussions with with fans of, of crystal palace of course my own club and, and other clubs who are shall we say in that battle royale um, and i i noticed you your attempt to not improve my good mood by mentioning the relegation battle here we uh, I, I let it pass <laughs> But because, um, <clears throat> of course, suddenly this, this announcement was made and you had optimistic Southampton, Leeds, Palace, West Ham, all sorts of clubs, less, you know, go, oh, well, you know, it's got to be points deduction, hasn't it? And it's got to be this year. And I've having to be saying it's not often I'm the sensible one. I'm pointing out, look, I'm very, it's very unlikely, I think, to be points deduction. And it's very unlikely to be this year, so don't count on Everton being gone and you've only got two other teams to finish above. But somebody did make a very good point off the back of that, Kieran, about the timing of the Premier League's announcement, which, as you say, it could be that it's either side of the white paper, so they want to show that they are able to regulate themselves. They don't need somebody from the outside, thank you very much. But you can only assume that this this must be a serious charge, Kieran. You can't mm. imagine they would publicly declare this if it was simply that they'd uh, submitted their accounts a day late. And what it occurs to me is that, Kieran, that if there is a strong sanction, and if that sanction is a points deduction, but it's not till next year, there are going to be a lot of clubs from last year and this season saying, well, hang on a second, then the, the people who benefit from the points deduction that Everton have next year are three clubs that are currently in the Championship. You're so, absolutely so, right. So how, yeah. so how is that fair? So it seems to me that the, the Premier League have, have set themselves up for an, an awful lot of problems. Even, even if Everton are completely exonerated of all these things, you would imagine their legal team would be looking at the Premier League and saying, why was this announcement made public? You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think if we, if we look at precedent, we go back to Carlos Tevez yeah. and West Ham giving Sheffield United, I think it was somewhere in the region of £20 million compensation when West Ham... Uh, avoided relegation, uh, and it was later proven that Carles Tevez had been subject to third-party ownership. Um, again, it's not the Premier League's jurisdiction, but issues in relation to Derby County, when both Middlesbrough and Wickham Wanderers put in claims uh, that they had been relegated, um, or they, or they, they, they sorry, 
Borough had not been promoted because Derby had got to the playoffs yeah. through through the use of an unusual accounting policy, and Wickham were saying that they'd been relegated on the same on the same reason. Now we know that there was a settlement between Middlesbrough and another party. Um, I think it may have been Mel Morris rather than Derby County itself, and, and we were not talking huge amounts. I think it was you know, as it was symbolic as much as anything else. Um, we don't know the score with Wickham because they've not yet published their accounts. So, so there are there is legal precedent for financial settlements here. Um, but if yeah, if I was that club that had just been relegated, we are talking about a drop in revenue. Realistically, for a club, yeah, let's say it was Leeds United, yeah, probably in the region of a hundred million pounds, yeah, because yeah. Yeah, Leeds are very attractive to commercial partners and sponsors. Um, you would have uh, an automatic reduction in the TV money of around about sixty to sixty-five million. Um, you, you wouldn't necessarily be able to charge the same prices. I know that Leeds have announced, uh, you know, I think we, we spoke about this recently, they've announced that should they survive uh, this season, I think season ticket prices are going up by 10%, but yeah. if they're relegated, they're being frozen. So there are financial implications here. Um, and, and um, you yeah, know, that's, that's, uh, that's where we are. Yeah. Also, Kieran, if you thought I was in a bad mood when we started, imagine... Uh, how that was affected when halfway through your explanation, I overdunked my one no. my, my, my one hobnob, overdunked it, and now I'm struggling. Uh, people will be surprised to hear that I have notes, or indeed make notes, but I'm now struggling to read them as they look like some kind of early David Hockney work notes. Oh. In, notes in hobnob, but we crack on, Kieran, because you know there are worse things happening in the world. <laughs> um, the Man United saga, Kieran, uh, rumbles on. Um, there's been bids and counter bids this weekend. What's the latest? And there is one specific question I want to ask you when you've told us. Right. The latest position is um, second bids went in from Jim Ratcliffe and Sheikh Jassim um, following the, the initial deadline, over which I think can only be described as, as complete chaos. Yeah. Um, whereby there was supposed to be a 9 p.m. Uh, deadline and it was sort of delayed uh, and nobody was quite sure and, and it came across as ridiculously amateurish right um it from, could have been the, from man united you mean I, I think from manchester united side you know if, if yeah. they if, if both sides had you know had a 9 p.m deadline then it's a 9 p.m deadline yeah and and all the parties and i think there was i think initially there was a request from one party um, and when the other party heard about it, they said, "Well, hold on, hold on, you know, uh, you're, you're, you're favouring, uh, you're favouring our rival bid." Um, it, it, it does appear that these are the only two bids right. initially, um, but it looks as if they are not at the level that the Glazer family was expecting. Um, and now we've got we've got the Rain Group going around doing the hustle. Yeah, and people like 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 to like like to make out that these banks are you know smooth and sophisticated. They're they're not. They're just like it's like Uncle Terry when he used to do Southwark Market. You know, he'd, he'd be he'd be sort of he'd have a he'd have one of his stooges um, around his stall, and he'd say, you know, he'd be selling off some old crap, and one of his stooges would be bidding, yeah, be bidding up the price. Yeah, um, so it's a bit bit like an auction. Um, so there there are sort of. Parties are leaking to journalists. Oh, that there were there were potentially up to eight interested parties, some of which were just looking for a minority stake. Um, there's been talk about um, an organisation called Elliott Management, who who were the owners of Milan, that they might buy a small stake or they might not, but they are willing to provide funding for anybody else that could provide that wants a small stake. Um, now, what I would say to anybody thinking of doing that, if you provide money for somebody else to make to buy you know, fifteen or twenty percent, effectively to, you know, potentially to buy out one or two of the Glazer children, but the Glazers remain in control, um, don't don't come to Manchester. You, you you won't be made very welcome. You will be seen as <laughs> yeah. the party which effectively has allowed the Glazer family to, to maintain control. Not that these people give a hoot, uh, you know, anyway, given the, the, uh, the history of, of, uh, history of the world of finance. As I've just been watching uh, 
the the program about uh, Bernie Madoff and, and how much he got away with uh, in terms of uh, financial chicanery. And then it went quiet for a few hours. So therefore, we bring out the Joker. It's a bit like it's a knockout. <laughs> and and they, brought out, they brought out the Joker in the form of Finnish entrepreneur Thomas Ziliakus. Uh-huh. And he says... Oh yeah, I've I've got an idea. Um, I'll put up fifty percent of the cost, and the other fifty percent will come from fans via crowdfunding. And I'm thinking, hold mm-hmm. on, I'm, I'm not <laughs> sure. I don't sure think that the, you know, the fans have have got three billion quid between them. And he says, because yeah, if, if it only works out as six six dollars per fan, okay, well, yeah, but there's loads of fans that are not really fans. You know, the yeah, the one point yeah. one billion. Um, followers that Manchester United put in their annual accounts each year is is treated with a, a guffaw or two. Yeah, you know, it's one in seven of the world's population. Yes, there might be people who say, if you had to choose a football club, which football club would it be? And they go, oh, the only one I've heard of is Manchester United. So, so you know, so t- take take these things with a large. Well, well, also, says, also, Kieran, you, you may recall we had that lovely interview with uh, AFC Crew recently, which are mm. setting out to be a properly fan-owned club. They're having enough trouble getting 240 people to agree. You, right. you start throwing 3 billion part owners in there. <laughs> <laughs> Those committee meetings are going to be taking quite some time, aren't they? Exactly. And and decisions would be made using an app. <laughs> I'm going, right. it, it, just, it, it just stank of publicity stunt. Um, remember, remember, Arsenal were supposedly subject to uh, a bid from uh, Daniel Ek, the guy that owns Spotify. Yeah, and, and it and it just just strikes me as uh, somebody who's thinking, um, how do I get my name in the papers by doing nothing? Right. Um, so when when is the decision decision due, Kieran? Well, there is no fixed date. I, I believe that further bids now have been received, which are closer to 5 billion i think the first two bids were they were rumored and yeah there's rumor and counter rumor were deemed to be rumored in the region of 4.3 to 4.5 billion there wasn't a huge amount of difference so therefore the rain group went back to ratcliffe and jasim and says yeah we're giving you a second chance um so i suspect this will be closer to five um Manchester United is not worth £5 billion as a business. It's worth £5 billion as a trophy asset, if if, if that's what you want. Um, and it's now persuading uh, one of these two parties or persuading the Glazers to, to take a, a cut on what they've convinced themselves Manchester United is worth, which, which I find rather strange because I, I added up all of the accounts uh, uh, since Manchester United were acquired by the Glazers, and actually they've made a loss. Right. So, you know, why, why pay £6 billion for, for a business which over 17 years hasn't made a profit? And and the, the currency involved will be pounds, will it? That's that's what the asking price is. Um, that, that's an interesting one. I mean, the... Oh, the, really? The, <laughs> the, the, the Glazers want dollars. So, right. you know, they... They they don't really care as long as they get the, you know, a, a figure which is big enough yeah. for them in terms of dollars. Um, yeah, Manchester United. I think we we've been talking about pounds simply because it's what we understand. Yeah. But given that Manchester United is quoted on the New York Stock Exchange, it's registered in the Cayman Islands and it's owned by a family in Florida. It, it could be uh, actually they have been asked to quote in dollars. Uh, and also, it's interesting as well, Kieran. You, you've said all along that you think that this price is overinflated. And Ratcliffe, again this week, has been using his uh, usual analogy, uh, saying the same thing, but basically saying what what what's a piece of art worth? It's worth whatever mm. you want to pay for it. And I don't think I. Sh- so the indications seem to me that Sheikh Yassim is the most likely buyer. And this is where my specific question is, Kieran. It's not just okay. from it's not just from me. It's from a lot of football fans, and it's not mischief-making either. Oh. And, and I, I suspect that some people will say, well, there are several clubs in the Premier League owned by Americans, so there's no conflict of interest there. But as I understand it, Sheikh Jassim's father used to be the Prime Minister of Qatar, I mm-hmm. believe. He, he has clear links through the bank that he owns to the government 
of Qatar. So mm-hmm. it, it is quite difficult for a lot of us to, to see where UEFA are going to make the distinction because, as we know, in that country, no decision is made without uh, the monarch. So it's quite difficult to see where this doesn't look like. Qatar will now be owning two huge clubs in Europe. Um, I, I agree with you, but a lawyer won't. Ah, okay. Um, <laughs> and I think ultimately... Um, how, many times, we... how many times did Uncle Terry hear those words? <laughs> 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 All right. So, trying to, I, th- it, I think the, the onus of proof would be on the Premier League to right, okay. say that there is a, a link to uh, the Qatari sports uh, investment fund, and I, I'd imagine a lawyer would be able to get, you know, okay. uh, not if not the full Kevin Bacon, but at least two or three <laughs> degrees of separation. <laughs> Okay. Um, we have one more news story, Kieran, and luckily we don't have quite as many questions as normal this week. I think Guy must have fallen asleep at his laptop. We still have a few, and they're good ones as well. Um, Huddersfield Town is the last news story. We were talking last week about a potential takeover from a local consortium. What's mm. what's happening there? Well, what has happened is uh, the former owner, Dean Hoyle, who sold the club, uh, sold 75% of the club, um, just before they were relegated from the Premier League, mainly for health reasons. Um, he has now bought out uh, the, the the owner, who appeared to be having quite severe financial issues to deal with. Many yeah. of his own companies have gone bust. Yeah. So Dean Hoyle now owns 100% of Huddersfield Town, um, but there are US owners to whom he is going to sell the shares once they've passed the owners and directors test. So it looks as if the, the these prospective US owners who nobody's been told about, which right. which seems a bit strange, yeah. um, will be going through the process with the EFL and you know, outstanding convictions, disqualifications of directors. But the most important thing, do they have the resources, A, to buy the club, and B, to uh, to fund the the uh, the expected losses over the course of at least the next two years. Um, now, I think what Dean Hoyle has done, and I think he, he deserves some credit for this. But there was a danger of administration. There's yep. no doubt about that. He has stepped into the breach um, to make sure that that doesn't take place, um, and and to give, uh, give give a bit of breathing space. How long will it take for a deal to go through? I think if we take a look at another championship club through which uh, which has had a, a fairly up and down season in terms of ownership, um, Coventry City, it took about two months is my understanding. Right. Uh, you, you've got to do your due diligence work as a prospective buyer, but the EFL have got their responsibilities as well. They do not want another Wigan. They do not want another Berry. They do not want another uh, change of ownership where things actually potentially could end up worse. Okay, on to our questions then, Kieran. And the first one comes from Marcus Makin. Uh, and Marcus says, I've noticed that two of the teams who were promoted from the Championship last season, Fulham and my club Bournemouth, seem to have very different approaches to ticket prices. Fulham put ticket prices up last year, but Bournemouth haven't increased season ticket prices since they were first promoted to the Premier League seven years ago. Is this really a grand gesture towards the fans? Were the season tickets widely overpriced seven years ago and they're still catching up? Or are the clubs bringing in increased ticket revenues from focusing on other revenues? Well, I think if we if we start off with Bournemouth, and I think they they do deserve some credit here that, uh, in terms of freezing freezing prices, and also you can get a match day ticket for behind the goal for thirty two quid, which is oh. uh, you know given it's a you know a, a day ticket, it's it's not cheap, but it's as, as we'll find out shortly, it's not necessarily as expensive as some other clubs. Yeah. Um, the thing about Bournemouth, they've got a relatively small capacity um, at the stadium, and. Income from season tickets, uh, sorry, income from all tickets um, works out as around about 3.8%, i.e. for every £100 that Bournemouth get, £3.80 comes from ticket sales. That's both season ticket sales and match day ticket sales. So I'll be honest, if you stuck the price of each ticket up by a tenner, it would make hardly any difference to the overall revenues. And therefore... And you know, I'm, I'm a great believer in giving credit to, to clubs when they do this. They said, "Well, we're not going to do that." Then, it, it, given how much money we can make from running the football club, 
in terms of being in the Premier League and the additional revenues that that brings, we would rather not alienate a section of our fan base by putting up prices as much as we can do. Bournemouth actually announced their results uh, earlier uh, this week. They lost £55 million pounds, uh, in getting promoted from the Championship to the Premier League in 21-22. And remember, that is a non-COVID season, mm. and we're talking about a club that was in receipt of parachute payments. That is the lunacy of football in this country. That is how much it's going to cost you to get promoted. Admittedly, included in those losses would have been promotion bonuses, but promotion bonuses are normally in the region of about £10 million and Bournemouth um, did have the benefit of significant amounts of, of parachute payments. So that's that's looking at the Bournemouth situation. Another thing that's got to be said to Bournemouth, and this is this is not being critical because I know that Sandbanks, for example, around that area is is in the mo- one of the most expensive places to live in the country. If you're a tourist coming to the UK, would Bournemouth be high on your list? Mm. Probably not. Whereas swanky London would be. And therefore, we move to our analysis of Fulham. Now, in terms of Fulham, it has to be said that season ticket prices, from from what I've read on sort of uh, some of the Fulham websites, um, they are deemed to be reasonable. I don't think they have been uh, particularly ripped off. But when it comes to match day prices, when Fulham were promoted, last season, I think prices went up by around about £20 a ticket. And we said that Bournemouth are charging you £32 to watch a match behind the goal. At Fulham, it's 65 And you're going, holy cow, that's that's lunacy. But who are they selling these tickets to? Clearly, the away fans' ticket prices are capped. You've got 15,000 season tickets. There's not that many match day tickets. And therefore, we move into the world of football tourism. Tourists are willing to pay. And as John Lydon once said, tourists are money. And that's how they are viewed by clubs. Um, So that's why Fulham have increased their prices. I can understand if I was a a Fulham fan who couldn't afford a season ticket or perhaps was working a couple of Saturdays a month or a couple of weekends a month and therefore it wasn't really feasible to get a season ticket. I can imagine a fan of that nature being absolutely hacked off. You can get a membership at Fulham, but it will cost you 50 quid and you only get five pounds off per ticket. So you'd have to go to, you have to attend at least 10 matches in order to get your money back. Um, So the, the reaction of Fulham fans, again, I've I've sort of trawled the, the the Fulham websites is um, they, they can't understand that given the owner, Shahid Khan, is a very successful business person in their own right, a billionaire. Why are they trying to effectively nickel and dime their own fans? Yeah, well, I mean, they've got that neutral area for a start, haven't they? Which is, I mean, right from the start, I think most football fans realise it's not a neutral area as such, it's a tourist area, essentially. And it, it's it's not a big enough ground to have a neutral area. Fulham, you know, Fulham and Palace are not the biggest clubs in the in the country, but Fulham would easily sell out that extra three thousand bit or whatever, however many it is. There's enough Fulham fans to fill that out. So it's always been a bit weird. And I remember back in the day, Kieran, even when Palace and Fulham were doing well in the same division, not the top one, obviously, you never had any problem getting a ticket going to Craven Cottage for a Palace game. The last. Uh, time they were in the Premier League, trying to get a ticket for the game at Craven Cottage, was, it was impossible, virtually. I had to pull out so many favours to get a ticket there. And it's just, it, it's out of all the clubs that you, you think shouldn't be risking good. Everybody likes Fulham. They're a good, everybody's got any interest in football history. You go, I, like, I really like going to Craven Cottage. That's a club steeped in history. As a Palace fan, they've got the same level of success as I have, so you can identify even better. But then you go, part of you goes, don't go down that route. You're, you're like that sort of club. Um, also, I just love the fact you you call it swanky London. I've got friends all over the country listening to this, and we're going, "Yeah, not the s off that." That's a, that's where you got the real answer. <laughs> this episode of the Price of Football is brought to you by the AI-powered workspace Notion. What if you had access to tomorrow's tools today in Notion? You do. It's the AI-powered workspace where any team can turn ideas into action. 
my career is sort of a bit like being a butterfly and I'm always jumping from project to project. So therefore, Notion helps me from summarising meetings notes and automatically generating action items to getting answers to any question in seconds. If you can think it, you can make it. And Notion is for everyone, whether you're a Fortune 500 company or a freelance football finance lecturer. You can try Notion for free when you go to notion.com slash price of football. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash price of football and start turning ideas into action. That's notion.com slash price of football. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insights, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Um, a simple question, Kieran, and this is one. Oh, uh, oh yeah, this is one. Uh, this sort of dominated our first year of the pod uh, quite a lot. This story, and it comes from Liam Conley. Oh, I beg your pardon. I've jumped a question, Kieran. That's why you're saying it's not a simple question. There you go. <laughs> that's you know you know what that's a product of. That's a product of <laughs> overdubbed hobnobs. Overdubbed hobnob. It's, it's where the hobnobs are, Kieran. It's the problem. Um, yes, if you thought my reference to John Jackson was an old-fashioned one, wait till you hear this reference. Uh, so our next question comes from uh, Christopher Tracy. Uh, I, and I'm guessing he's not the first ever presenter of Blue Peter. <laughs> hey, um, Christopher's question, this is a really interesting one because I know what the answer was 15 years ago. Whether it's the same now, I don't know. But Christopher says, I have a question regarding football on TV in pubs. I know it's not strictly a financial question as such. It sort of is, Christopher. But it's inspired by the women's Euros. The BBC said 9 million people watched the quarterfinal against Spain. My question is, how do Sky, BT and the BBC measure viewing figures when many people will be watching in pubs? My local can either have 50 people watching a game if it's a tournament, but sometimes it's just one or two people. I assume viewing figures can be used in negotiation when it comes to broadcasting deals, but could this variance distort those viewing figures somewhat? And certainly a while ago, Kieran, the BBC wouldn't have measured figures in pubs it was always you know they had this system this radio system when five six seven thousand houses have this set box thing on it and they extrapolate from that who's watching what uh and i don't think the bbc would have got a lot of publicity if they were assuming people were watching their programs in the pub um so i'd be interested to hear what you say the answer is now kieran I think nothing has changed from, right. from my understanding. So you're absolutely right. Um, the broadcasters use BARB, the Broadcasters Audience Research Board, yeah. which has uh, magic boxes in 5,300 households. And then what they do is they say, well, that is statistically, that is statistically significant. You can draw some reasonable conclusions. And they also identify the, the number of people in those households. Um, and they they use these boxes to to identify what people have been watching. I think you're supposed to click a, click a button yeah, when you're yeah, watching yeah. a particular channel and so on. But they've also done research. Now, this research is probably four or five years old, that they reckon that the maximum number of people that are ever watching matches taking place in pubs is no more than 6%. Right, okay. So if we were to say we've got the BBC say 9 million people are watching the, the, the Women's Euros finals, I think for the quarterfinals, I think the final was, was amazing figures, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, huge. The, the biggest, the, the, the most highest viewed uh, TV of last year, yeah. apart from the, the passing of the Queen. Um so if it's 6% of 9 million, we're talking about half a million people um, that you could add on. And I would imagine that that's what the broadcasters will say. You know, for the big matches, we, these are the official figures, but from the point of view of negotiating 
with uh, advertisers. They say, well, come on, you, you, you know that uh, if it's if it's Liverpool versus Manchester United, if it's Arsenal versus Spurs, if it's Palace versus Brighton, you know that the pubs are going to be absolutely rammed um, with with people in the pub. So we can add on you know, 5 or 6% in terms of the official figures. But if it's if it's an EFL evening and it's Wickham versus Rotherham, then and they're not in the same division. I appreciate um, you won't be able to do the same. Yeah, um, I can, no, I, it amazes me that anybody sells advertising to football games that are being shown in pubs because yes. all you can hear is the sound of a hundred blokes turning to the bar. Um, I do know. I do know that following some random research from local pub owners, which I'm happy to do on a regular basis. Um, they're more scared of BT than they are of HMRC because they really? oh yeah B, the BT they, he's, they're all convinced that BT you know half those mopeds you see zooming about that you think are delivering food they will think it's, <laughs> that's BT checking whether they've got an actual BT account to show the games and so I said to one of them it's like well, you know, it's a bit of a giveaway if you're drawing the curtains at half past one in the afternoon <laughs> Someone's going to get suspicious. I, I think. Do you know what? Okay, I, I think you should measure how what people are watching on TV by, by Gogglebox. Although <laughs> I hadn't watched. I was, oh God, that's a sign you're getting. They used to say it's a sign you're getting old when policemen look younger. It's a sign you're getting old when you haven't watched Gogglebox for three years and you go back and half of them have died. That was Where's Leon? I loved him. But that, this question, Kieran, the the simple one that did dominate. Um, uh, our pod for about a year, the situation at Carlisle, and Liam Conley asked a question. Um, I should have said spoiler alert from earlier when I mentioned his name without the question. Liam says, what is the latest with the Carlisle United outstanding debt of £2.5 million, which was originally a loan from Philip Day's Edinburgh Woollen Mill, but is now owed to pure pay retail? Yeah, this is a very strange situation. Still, um, yeah. And it is unresolved. And the thing is, there are... There are various ways that people could allow Carlisle fans to sleep a little bit more soundly at night. Um, I, I like Carlisle. I've said on more occasions that they, they, they're one of my favourite set of accounts. Indeed. They're really, <laughs> really detailed, they're really comprehensive. Uh, but the one thing that they keep referring to, and the, the auditors refer to this as well, is it's what's known as a going concern qualification. It's um, Carlisle did owe money to a company called Edinburgh Woolen Mill. And that I think that owns used to own places like Jaeger and so on, but it went into administration. Now, the owner of Edinburgh Woolen Mill is a, a very successful retailer called Philip Day. He lives in Dubai. He, uh, he says he doesn't come to the UK for more than 10 days a year. Um, he, he also says, I've got no interest in football, but without me, there'd be no Carlisle United. So that's yeah. why I've, I've lent them the money. In, in which case... Great, be, be philanthropic. You know, yeah. I'm hats off to you. Um, when Edinburgh Woolen Mill went into administration, it was owed quite a lot of money by Carlisle United, and that debt was effectively bought by this company called Pure Pay Retail, which is also controlled by all accounts by Philip Day. Oh, uh, so he he effectively carried over the debt to a new company. Um, interest is being charged on the debt. They're not prepared to increase the amount that's being lent, um, but there's no clarification coming. Now, the auditors have said, well, yeah, we've not been given a guarantee by pure pay that they won't ask, because they're asking the money back, the, the club's knackered. Yeah. But, but equally, we've not been told that they are quite happy to sit it out. They're, they're just getting nothing. And, and this I find really strange because Pure Pay and Carlisle appear to have a common director. So you would think that somebody would be willing to say, this is the position, either we do want the money or we don't want the money or we want the money in installments and just give some um, clarity and transparency to the situation. But we're not getting that at present. And yeah, it's a shame that you know, ultimately what appears to be quite a, a generous uh Don, you know, not a donation, but a generous gesture, um, is now souring the relationship. The fans are uncertain as to what's happening, and uh, the auditors are uncertain. And 
it means that you can't plan because yeah, yeah. how can you how can you commit to say you know half a million pounds worth of ground development if at the same time you're having to scrabble around and sort of you know gather every fifty p you find down the back of the sofa in case pure pay say eh, we want our money back now right so that was going to be a question that I've, i'm sure i did ask you this back in the day kieran but so did, this is not a loan that's being repaid on a monthly annual basis is this is just a loan which they are sitting there with their fingers crossed hoping that it's not asked yeah, to return. It, it's, right. it's, it's a loan which appears to be frozen right but with but is attracting interest oh right okay oh, yeah as you said yeah okay the second question kieran that you, you say philip day doesn't come back to the country for more than 10 days a year. Is that simply because he prefers the sunshine in Dubai or is that to do with his non-dom status? No, no. I, you know, t- 10 days a year wouldn't, wouldn't you know, a, a tourist can come here for right, three or okay. four weeks. It, it, it's, uh, I don't think it's driven by tax. I just think it's driven by, uh, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's from a, he's from Stockport. That's where I used to live. Uh, I can understand you not wanting to come back to Stockport. Well, you don't, I'm going to leave a pause here, Kieran, while, uh, People can disassociate me from those comments because it's normally me that gets the regionalist <laughs> abuse. Also, I mean, I, I, obviously, you'd think I'd like somebody called Philip Day, but if he prefers sunshine to Stockport and sod him, don't like him. <laughs> uh, our next question, Kieran, comes from Dan Sharp. I say it's a question. It's also partly a cunning attempt to put his uh, CV out yes. there to, <laughs> to the public, which I, I actually quite admire, Dan. Well done. Dan says, I work for a tech company, and at the moment I'm trying to sell software to a Premier League club. On the face of it, it would seem they'd have plenty of budget. You'd imagine so, wouldn't you, Premier League club, Kieran? But I now know they operate incredible lean businesses. My question is, what is the typical spend of a Premier League club on technical infrastructure and software to optimise their website? The club in question is a top four club, and they've told me their website revenue but I was surprised at the small running costs and how old and outdated the infrastructure is considering the potential of online revenues. There's no point speculating which of the top four clubs it is, Kieran, but you, well, I was surprised to hear that they haven't got state-of-the-art uh, website infrastructure manned by 25, 26 eager young men, women, non-binary, whatever. Never be surprised at the tightness of football clubs. Wow, okay. Really? Because the the bud because the budget is all focused on what happens on the pitch. Uh, so okay. therefore they will quite often take the view is if we can get by with Windows ninety five running our website, we'll cross our fingers and uh, okay. we'll we'll do our best. Um and, and that is not just in relation to um, you know Dan's particular area. I, I, I hear this again and again. Uh, Non-football-related expenditure um, is uh, towards the lower end of, of people's expectations. At the same time, there are many people who are pitching towards football clubs, especially in the Premier League, who think it is a gravy train and therefore perhaps quote you know quote their prices accordingly. I remember when, when I was in Thailand, there were there were prices for local people, there were prices for tourists like me, uh, and I was just sort of you know a student backpacking. Then there were prices for American tourists, and there were prices for Japanese tourists. And it's the same. You effectively pay a tax depending upon which tier of tourist you are deemed to be. Sometimes that applies um, in respect of other goods and services which are trying to be sold to football clubs. But my understanding is is that football club procurement is is an area where they they do try to drive down um, the prices because they will, what what the football club will say is that we have another person who or another. Uh, organization who is prepared to do the same for the kudos of being able to say to their other clients by the way we are the suppliers to uh, this particular football club right. and that's effectively free marketing free advertising free pr and therefore the football club leverages on that when it's in negotiations <clears throat> 3pr was the robot that didn't make the cut in star wars wasn't it Yes. Um, our next question, Kira, that only works if you've got a South London accent and you can't <laughs> distinguish between three and three. Right. I heard somebody, uh, somebody, not Miko, but somebody from Finland trying to pronounce Fortin Heath the other day it was hilarious. 
Anyway, um, <laughs> Alexander Walton has uh, a fairly simple question, but an interesting one. Alexander says, FIFA changed its rules around loaning players to overseas clubs last year. Will the Manchester City group then still be able to loan players under their control, such as Troy in France or Girona in Spain? Um, yes, I mean, these rules, which are which are tiered rules, um, FIFA have said you can only have eight international transfers dropping to six by season 24-25, and you cannot loan more than three players to one other club. Um, and they do this, um, you know, and FIFA come in for a fair amount of stick uh, from, from this show, um, but I've been praising them recently, and I'll you praise have. them again. They, they're doing this for the right reason. It's for it's for the integrity of competition to stop to stop clubs effectively creating B teams elsewhere. Um, it's to aid player development, and it's to prevent the hoarding of players because otherwise there is there is a genuine risk, and I think this has been amplified as a result of the elite player performance plan um, of certain clubs acquiring. Young player after young player after young player, they they cost relative peanuts, and then you you could potentially loan them all out, get somebody else to find out whether they're any good or not as, as far as being a professional in in the senior games are concerned, and keep all the good ones for yourself. And that would mean that the smaller clubs wouldn't be able to get gain access to, to these players as, as they develop. Um, so that they are r- r- pretty good principles, FIFA have said that they want individual football associations to uh, apply something similar domestically as well. But it won't necessarily be a maximum of six or eight. They'll, they'll leave that to individual football associations. With regards to the City Football Group, I don't think Manchester City or the City Football Group will be disadvantaged. And the reason for this, and I'm not saying that the system is being gamed, is that if you own three or four clubs in Europe, what you do is that instead of loaning the player to another club, you simply sell them. And then you've got a buyback clause as well. And there's a bit of nudge, nudge, wink, wink should we say, taking place. I'm not saying this this has ever taken place with regards to Manchester City, but certainly that's what I do. I, I'd, I'd be able to, to dance around those rules pretty easily, and I'm you know, I'm just a teacher. Yeah, you, we all know how you can't dance, Kieran. I think we've established <laughs> that of all the many things yes. you can do around the world, Thailand including, dancing is not one of them. Um, Martin Avery has come up with uh, – if I had a hat, Kieran, I would take it off to Martin because he's managed to find a new angle on a question about agents. Um, <laughs> uh, but it's a very interesting one, actually, I think, and there are parallels to my world, as I will mention at the end. Martin mm. says, I realise you've spoken about agents, including interviews with agents and agencies before, but how do big agencies actually deal with their clients? Would there be a specific representative that works with the player, and how many players would they be responsible for? Also, is the merger of CAA and ICM a bad deal for players as they become even more just a number uh, or on the back burner, as we call it in the community now, uh, comedy? For clubs, it obviously shrinks the market and gives the agency greater bargaining when it comes to negotiations as they represent that many more players and can use high-profile players as bargaining chips for negotiations with lesser players. Now, there are, there are two sides to that. I once had, early in my career, I was represented by a super agent at the time who was brilliant for a while, but then just uh, acquired more and more comedians until you realise in the end that she couldn't possibly give as much attention to, to you as she as she could give to everybody else. But also that last point's an interesting one, Kieran, because it will happen a lot in, in comedy and entertainment mm. in that a big comedy agency will say to a production company, Yes, you can have our superstar for QI or for what I lie to you, but only if you take two of our up-and-coming stars for that new show you're doing on a satellite channel. So that happens quite a lot. So I'd be interested to hear whether it happens in football because I assume it would do, Kieran, wouldn't it? I think potentially I've, I've spoken to an agent friend uh, with regards to this, and he says as far as the large agencies are concerned – you will effectively have what's what's re- referred to as a relationship manager. I. Yes, of course. You yeah. are allocated somebody, yeah. um, rather than a pool, and I think that's that's only right because it's all about networking and building up a relationship and knowing the yeah. strengths and weaknesses of of your client. Now, that relationship manager could have up to twenty players because they just try to stockpile as much talent as possible. 
it sounds to me fairly similar to what the experience that, that you had. Um, and there's always a danger, of course, that the relationship manager getting on well has now got some players who have come through a high profile and decides to go solo. So there are contracts that means that if you leave, you can't take the players with you, but those rules are actually quite difficult to apply. Yes, uh, of course. And it gets quite messy. And, and again, I would always recommend, if anybody's interested in the world of agents, I'd recommend the book, The Secret Agent. Um, by all accounts uh, from from the agents I have spoken to, they sort of say, yeah, this, this, this person does know what they're talking about. Um, with regards to the um, consolidation in the market with uh, uh, creative agents, Creative Artists Agency. I think this is more of an American talent Hollywood-style agency um, than necessarily football. But uh, it, it does it does bring the risk of agencies being able to uh, dominate things. And I am fully aware of some football clubs, and I think most people will probably guess who these clubs are, whose transfer policy, I'll, I'll say no more, that it, it appears to be agent-led <laughs> as much as anything else. Yes. Um, the relationship manager is interesting, Kim, because I, I, I would guess, for example, that Harry Kane probably has one person who is employed solely to look after Harry Kane, whereas Joel Ward at Palace, for example, would be in a pool of 20. You know, and, and a player at a League Two club would probably be have a, an agent who's just – that quite often happens as well. That a, a new agent starts on Monday and they say, right, here's your players. They've, they've mm-hmm. just signed from us one place for Walter, one place for Carlo. And, and the idea is that you build up together. But that that is a big issue. That that idea, like you say, no matter how watertight a contract is, there are always agents looking to go it alone and take players with them, aren't there? Um, yeah. Our last two questions, Kieran. On the face of it, might seem trivial, but I think they're both really interesting. Brian O'Connor actually prefaces his question by saying, this seems like a silly question. Brian, trust me, uh, as Kieran will know with some of the things that I say to him occasionally, both before and after the pod, you can't ask questions sillier. Every now and again, Kieran will say, don't say that on the pod, will you? Because I was, oh, right, okay. I thought it was a clever question. It turns out not. But Brian O'Connor says, this seems like a silly question, but is there a literal transfer list? Is there an actual list of every player in the world that is available to sign during the window? Or is it all agents and behind-the-scenes dealings? It's, it's a, I think that's a great question, Kim, because we, that's a, it's one of those football phrases we just throw about all the whole time. Is there a, is there a list? I don't think there is a definitive list. The the Professional Footballers Association will have a list of their members who are out of contract at the end of the season. So so that will be circulated amongst clubs. Um, The way that it's actually dealt with these days tends to be through WhatsApp because you will get loan managers and you will get um, directors of football and sporting directors and they will all be in WhatsApp groups. And um, one of them will simply say... It's not official, but if anybody is interested in XXX, give me a call. Um, and we also have something which has come into creation in the last few years, and that is called Transfer Room. And this is sort of – it's a bit like speed dating for football clubs, and there's a really good article about it in The Athletic this weekend. Um, and it, it's where clubs come together over uh, over a desk. And I don't know, you know if anybody – if anybody's ever done speed dating, it's a rather surreal experience. You you have somebody sitting down, and then you are literally moving from chair to chair to chair, according to a friend of mine. <laughs> I happen to add. <laughs> that was way too late. Kieran, I need to you, – just as you tell me about – I need to tell you how to operate sometimes, Kieran. It's way too late to say halfway through that, so I'm told. You, you, <laughs> you can't start by saying if anybody's had any experience with this. What happens is you sit down <laughs> – Oh, you're so innocent. How you've managed to get through Thailand, Moscow, every other corner of the world, it's beyond me. Anyway, transfer room. I've never heard of such a thing, Kieran. That sounds like a strange, surreal, almost comedy process. Yeah, well, I think the the last uh, – they do have online uh, meetings. But they? The last one they had, I believe, was at Stamford Bridge. <laughs> there were 235 clubs and 45 agents, and they were they were shuffling around. Wow. And you were, and the buzzer went every two minutes, and boom, boom, boom. <laughs> and you, uh, so it, very odd. Uh, but I don't think it's an, there's not an official gross list of all players because 
if that got released to players, but also if it got released to the media, yeah, it, it would be carnage. Um, because it's somebody would and it would have been up on Twitter by now, surely, if if there was a genuine global transfer list. Yeah, you just have you not just released it to the media? Are you saying that once the media find out about transfer room, they'll be in there pretending to be in the same way that led by donkeys pretending to set up this <laughs> South Korean company this week to watch him bemuse Quasi Quartier and ask for ten thousand pound a day for his services? Our last question, Kieran, comes from Phil Chater, and, and I'm just going to tell you this, Kieran. At the end of your answer, I'm going to tell you about an idea I've had. Oh. And I was going to say it's off the back of Phil Chater's question, but if Phil Chater's lawyer is listening, I had this idea <laughs> I had this idea way before Phil Chater ever, ever asked this question. I've been thinking about it recently. It's just Phil Chater's question reminded me. Uh, Phil says, way, way back in 1987, the FA Cup final was between Tottenham Hotspur and Coventry City. Other than it being regarded as one of the best finals ever, well, not in North London, I imagine, for, well, one half of it anyway, it's possibly also remembered due to a mix-up that meant only half of the Tottenham players wore the Holston sponsorship on their shirts. If such a thing were to happen in this day and age, it wouldn't. But what potentially would be the financial consequences? Well, it would be a breach of contract yeah. because uh, the sponsor and the football club have an agreement. At the same time, it would have generated so much publicity. You know, if, if Spurs sponsor or, you know, you can imagine if Standard Chartered had, had only six players yeah. turning up for, for Liverpool – that they'd probably go, well, actually, guys, you know, let's let's be practical about this. It it worked. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> so you know, I, if 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 the, if it was towards the end of a deal and the deal was expiring, you know, at the thirtieth of June, and this was the FA Cup final, you could possibly put in for a claim. But I don't think the numbers would be significant because. How much of the you know the three or four year deal that you've had? If you if you divide that between every match, if you then divide that between every player, um, it, the numbers involved are going to be so small that it's probably not worth a lawyer getting out of bed to to argue the case on your behalf. Okay, right. Well, no, my idea, Kieran, and you know, as you as you were answering that question, I suddenly thought this is such a good idea. We may already have done it. Or it's such a good idea, I'm not going to say it out loud in case Swiss Ramble gets hold of uh, Michael McIntyre and does it as well. But <laughs> I think, you, you know, occasionally in, in, in summer we have a, a couple of weeks off, or, or you do, you know, I, I generally under the duvet. So well, let's say Christmas, Kieran, so I can cheer myself up by mentioning the word Christmas. We, we have a period where we record some questions pods. I think tapping into the nostalgia market, the whole replica shirt market, we could do a nostalgic price of football. It would be quite funny if we just have questions based on wage contract deals in 1948 and shirt sponsorship in 1981. And just, I'm sure we could get enough questions about incidents <laughs> in previous years' football, about you know the cost of the pen that they used to sign a contract in the middle of the pitch at half-time, bizarrely, by the chairman. Yeah. And the she- how much did the sheepskin coat cost? For example, that's I think I'm sure we'd get enough questions to to knock, yes, to knock out one. That'd be that'd be one pod for producer guy not to have to worry about. I think, I think that's a great. Idea. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go out and tell Ellie that idea. She said, oh, "You've cheered up." My, <laughs> although obviously I'd be on the way back from the off license. Um, thank you for listening, everybody. If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod, that would be very kind of you. Then you can do so by going to patreon.com slash price of football. If you have a question you'd like answered on the show, email us at questions at price of We've had some very good interviews recently brought to you. We've got some more coming up in the next couple of weeks. I'm not going to spoil the surprise, but they are very well worth waiting for. In the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. Well, thank you to everybody at Patreon for your continued support for the show. We really, uh, we're really chuffed. We're, we're honoured by it, um, and also for, for uh, I know that um, somebody from Chelsea got in contact with me with some errors I made on Chelsea pitch owners. So oh, you know, okay. we, we, we do take them on board. Apparently, that the pitch is not divided into one meter squares for ownership. It's there are many, many shares in Chelsea pitch owners, and you can't have more than ten votes. But there's okay. there's a few more things. I'm, I might might even ask the guy to come and tell us all about Chelsea pitch owners. I'd be really into. Well, Kieran, what have we just said? A nostalgia pod already. 
you've got somebody coming on to talk about an idea that Kent Bates had. Yeah. It's a great idea. No, that's I, 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 do you know what, Kieran? I think the Chelsea pitch owners thing is something that if people have heard of it, I know people who've heard of it who assume it is some kind of money-making uh, process for posh people who invested in the Chelsea back in the day. And it's not at all, is it? It's actually a safeguard, no, no. a safeguarding process. So I'd be very happy to have someone come on and talk about it. Cool. Uh, so uh, that's look, we, 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 we just thank you very much for, for taking that amount of interest really? in the show and also for, the, for the, the hundreds of questions we've got. And we will get round to them even if we're six feet under on a Monday morning, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get Doris Stokes to, to tap the Ouija board. Do you know, you've just you've just underlined a flaw in my plan, Kieran, is that by the time we get to some of these questions, they will be nostalgia questions. Yes. <laughs> just, I asked that 30 years ago. Hang on a second. Um, but uh, there's another way you can support the show, and that is to go onto the app, uh, that you use to download your podcast and, and to give us a review. Um, apparently, according to Producer Guy, it helps us in the charts, helps us with the algorithms. Um, I know some people have been saying that the shows have been getting a bit long recently. So if you wanted a slightly shorter show, why not say you'd rather have it presented by Liam and Noel Gallagher? And that wouldn't <laughs> last too long at all, would it? <laughs> I've definitely listened to that one. It's not the, – the, the pods have been getting a little bit longer, everybody. That's, that's football's fault. It's not our fault. Yes. It, yes. If, fo- if football stopped doing stupid things financially, we'd, we'd have much shorter pods. Uh, <laughs> and now, I, according to this, it's we've been talking for two hours, four minutes. That's because the clock's oh, no, went no. forward. That's, that's <laughs> this, why they put the clocks back and forth. It's, it's, it's 12 minutes past eight, Kieran. It's not properly dark outside. This is – I'm not going to get any happier for the next – until the clock's months. Yeah. Bye, everybody. Yes. <laughs> Bye. The price of football.